If you will turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, um, if you're using the Bible in front of you in the pew, it's uh, page 462. Um, we believe that God's message is important here, and we want everyone to have access to God's Word, so we want you to know that if you do not have a Bible of your own, that um, to please take this one um, as a gift from us to you, um, no charge. It's a gift. Um, we want to make sure that everyone has God's word available, so um, please feel free. Well, last week, we took a look at our lives, and we broke ourselves down to um, our irresistible, irre- irresistible, irreducible minimum. Does anybody remember what the irreducible minimum is? I'm hoping so. Anybody, what is the irreducible minimum? People need Jesus. Jesus in your life. Irreducible minimum. Bottom line, you can't get beyond this life without him. You know, this is just a snapshot of our real existence, our full life. It's kind of the the warm-up, if you will, for eternity. And eternity sounds a whole lot longer than 80, 90 years. So irreducible minimum is Jesus. Today we're going to look at the difference between existing and actually living. There is a difference. As Alan Sachs says, death is more universal than life. Everybody dies, but not everyone lives. It's a proven fact. It's 100% across the board. You will die. So we're looking at this topic of existing versus living. You know, it's really easy for us to get used to everyday life, just to walk through the motions of life, but not really be in that moment, not really realize what we're really doing all the time. Have you ever been driving down the road, and hopefully it's a straight road, but you've gone a few miles, and then you realize, like, man, I didn't realize I was this far already. Man, that was quick. And you realize that you were just kind of like, man, I'm glad God was with me because I wasn't paying any attention to where I was driving. I was just all, you know, hoping I was staying in between the lines there somewhere. And so we have that picture of ourselves. Time out. So we find that picture of ourselves sometimes just kind of gliding through life, not really realizing what is really going on and what's taking place in our life. One of the things that as we read through Ecclesiastes, which I challenge you to read it sometime, it it would be a challenge to read it, and you really have to take your time because he's very cynical, (laughs) but yet it's such a perfect picture of the every average day human because he's struggling with God. And he's not hiding it. He's not coming to church on Sunday morning and acting like everything's perfect 
and he knows everything about God, but then during the week, he's just like letting God have it because he doesn't, can't figure it out. He's not putting on a perfect face. He's, he's flat out saying, I don't get it. I'm struggling with this. And to me, all of this just seems meaningless. Why? Why does this take place? Why is this happening? I don't get it. But yet, as I search the scriptures, as, as I try to learn about God, I realize I don't really want to know. And so we find one of his struggles in Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 22. It says, I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of animals. So the same fate awaits both. Okay, now I want to pause right here for all of you pet lovers out there. This is not saying all dogs go to heaven, all cats go to heaven. Not. He's not saying this is a matter between heaven and hell. But he says, as one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. Still, not saying heaven and hell. All come from dust, and to dust all return. You return to the matter from which you came. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? He's literally struggling with this idea of the afterlife. What happens to us after we die? He's the wisest man to ever live. And he does not know what happens after we die. And so there's this question in his mind this is meaningless. Why am I trying to figure this out? Why am I wasting time on this? What Solomon is also saying is that you better make the moments that you have now count. Take advantage of the time that you have now. It's this whole idea of carpe diem, which means seize the day. Don't find yourself going through life and get on the other end of a couple days and you realize, wow, where'd the days go? I didn't realize what I was doing and, you know, they just went so fast. And you forget to live in that moment. Because even if you get to the end of those few days and you realize, wow, those were just some great days, what happened? What value is it if you get to the end of those days and you don't remember? You just know it was good. Well, great. That was meaningless. But he's calling us to live in the moment, in the days that we have. Something we all struggle with in life is this paradigm between existing and living. I want us to take a few moments and look at, at three things that I think will help us live a life to the fullest that Jesus wishes and desires for each one of us to have. 
The first one is this. God is judge. God is the judge. In Ecclesiastes 3, 16 and 17, Solomon says, And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. God is the ultimate judge. We're not. Don't waste your time judging everyone else. Because it's meaningless. Because you literally have no say in their life. You have no say in the decisions that they make, whether they're good or bad in your eyes. You're just wasting your time on something that literally has no value to you or anyone else. Existing simply involves getting up and going through the day with no real purpose just merely living within the checklist of life. To live, we must live within each experience. To, to live in the moment and love the time that we have. But in this passage, we also see that there's a sense of accountability for us. If God is the judge, he has to judge something. And so, guess what? You're it. So he's the ultimate judge. So one day we will give an account for the decisions, for the actions that we made, the things that we did. You, you may think that I'm in my house by myself. The door's locked. No one else is here with me. It's okay if I watch this show on TV. No one else will know. I'm not hurting anyone by doing it. Well, you are. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting your relationship with God. Number two, God is the ultimate giver. We looked at this passage a little bit last week where Solomon writes in uh, chapter 2, verse 24, a person can do nothing better than to eat, drink, and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. And, and I may be a little slow here, but I just want to share with you a little something that I learned this week. Whenever I had read Ecclesiastes in the past, before this, and whenever I would read the word toil, I took it as bad to waste our life going through doing all of the, the things that are a waste of time. But he's not referring to it as bad things. He's not referring to it as wasted time. He's referring to it as simply the things that we do. The toil, the things that we do throughout our day, throughout our life, the jobs that we do, the work that we do for a living. So he's saying that to eat, to drink, those are things that require you to live, right? So you should be satisfied. You should be happy when you have something in front of you because, trust me, there are plenty of people in this world who don't have that. 
find satisfaction in the things that you do. You should ask yourself, if I don't have satisfaction in the things that I do, why am I doing it? It's literally meaningless. It's pointless. It has no value to anyone. I love watching people in Florida mow their yard. I'm going there in the first week of June, and I'm excited because I get to play golf. But I love watching them mow their yard because it's like astroturf. I mean, it's, I mean, it doesn't get any bigger than this. Why are you mowing it? But yet they water it too. I don't get it. It's a waste of time and money, but they do it. Don't figure it out. So, but we do things like that that are bigger than like, mowing grass. Don't, you know, we're not talking about the little things here. We're talking about big things. If you're doing a job that you hate and the people that you work with cannot stand you because you hate your job, find a new one and quit that one. Because you should be happy in what you do. Because when I pull up to the drive-thru at McDonald's and you don't like your job, I don't like you either. I won't get started on my whole customer service kick here. But it's love what you do. I've told you the story before, and it lines up perfectly here. Reading gas meters, I hated reading gas meters. I come up to this laundromat that literally looks abandoned. They had hired this homeless guy to sweep. Well, the winds were blowing like 30 miles an hour, and he's literally out there sweeping leaves. I'm like, what are you sweeping? I just walk past him, I read the gas meter, and I go to leave, and he's like, be happy you have a job. Thanks a lot, God, because I've just been venting to God, like, why am I reading gas meters? And here's this homeless guy sweeping leaves in, like, 30-mile-an-hour wind. I learned in that moment to at least be happy I had a job, even though I didn't like the job. But find satisfaction in what you do. Ecclesiastes 3, in verse, uh, verse 1 says, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. And a time to love and a time to hate. And a time for war and a time for peace. What I want you to understand here is that Solomon is not advocating for these things. Especially the last ones, 
a time to love and a time to hate. He's not saying you should love and you should hate. He's not saying that we should go to war and we should have peace. He's not saying that. He's simply showing the full spectrum of the experience, the full spectrum of life that is out there. But he's not advocating for those things. Notice the first two pairs that he shares encompass the life cycle. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. But one of these things that it also says to us is that a person and plants and animals, if you want to put them in there too, do not have any control over the start or the finish of their life. You did not get to play in your birth. And unfortunately, as much as we want to try, we don't get to plan our death. Verse 9. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. All the things that we have in life are a gift from God. When we realize that the things that we have, the cars that we drive, the jobs that we have, the house that we have, the children that we're blessed with, the clothes that we have on our backs, the food that we get to eat, no matter how much or how little, everything in our life is from God. And in an instant, if he desires, he can take it away. The frustrating thing is that we get so frustrated because things are out of our control. Because we want to have control of them. We want it to be what we can do. What we can do with our lives, not what God wants to do with us. Solomon advises his hearers to give up trying to fathom God's way in the world but rather enjoy the present. Enjoy the present life that you have. Which leads into the next point. God is in control. No matter how much you think you have control over your life, God is in control. God is in control. You ultimately get one choice in life. And that is, will I believe and follow Christ and go to heaven? Or will I reject him and deny him and go to hell? 
it's, it's not a, a hard thing to grasp. It's reality that this is it. Um, as one of my professors says, you have to fall off the log. You can't stay on the fence. It's one way or the, the other. There is no going down the middle and you get to stay on earth for the rest of your life. It's not possible. You have to realize that God is in control. Ecclesiastes 3, 14 and 15 I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever he has, whatever, whatever is has already been done. And what will be has been done before. And God will call the, call the past to account. God knows your life before you decide. When we come to a decision that is a decision that will either accept God and give glory to God or reject God and not glorify him, if we're faced with a decision, God knows what decision you will make, but he's wishing for one specific decision. but he will call you into account for the things that we have done. But there's another part of this to, that God is in control that we need to realize, and that is simply existing. We will only exist because we cannot move forward until we fully understand everything. You will not be going from a life that simply exists on this earth physically to actually living the life that God desires for you until you realize that everything, I understand it. Because as Solomon says in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, again, I looked and I saw the oppression that was taken, taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed as they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors and they have no comforter. Ecclesiastes 7.15, in this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. The righteous not getting what they deserve and the wicked not getting what they deserve. But one gets punished and the other gets exalted. You know, we could spend our lives trying to figure out why does God allow bad things to happen? Why does God allow the child to die at birth? Why does God not heal some people of cancer, but heal other people? You could spend your whole life battling with that question, those questions, every single day, every single moment of your life, and when you die, you still will not know the answer to it. But when you realize that God is in control, and it really does not matter a bit if you understand 
you stop existing and you can live because you stop worrying about the things you have zero control over. You stop worrying about the things that you will never understand. As much as I would love to come up to a family who has just lost a young child and comfort them and tell them, you know, God is in control. God loves you. They don't want to hear that. Why? Because they don't understand. They don't understand. And it's okay. It's okay to not understand. It doesn't make you any less of a person. It doesn't make you any less valuable as a person. It's okay to not know everything about God. Because I'll be honest with you. If me as a pastor could know everything about God, I don't know that I would want to worship him. Because if God is not smarter than me, there's a problem. Because I'm not all that smart. Jennifer will attest to that. And let's be honest, you're not either when it comes down to it. So we worship a God who knows a lot more about us knows a lot more about how the world should function. That's the God I want to worship. The God who's in control. Because I know what happens when I try to do things myself, and control is not one of the things that I would use to explain it. It's usually called out of control. Kind of like driving here this morning. Friday, I spent the whole day putting new tie rod ends on my front tires. My dad texted me yesterday because he helped me, and he said, so how's the car driving? I said, I don't know. I haven't had a chance to drive it. I backed it out of my driveway, and I drove it back. Or, yeah, backed it out of my garage, drove it back in my garage, and the wheels didn't fall off, so I thought it was good. Pulled out of my driveway and realized that I need my tires aligned because uh, one of my tires is kind of like this and the other one's eh. And so I hear this loud whistle sound all the way here. And I'm like, God, please don't let my tires blow up. But at the same time, I told Jennifer I would drive a car until the wheels fell off. So I might be praying on the way home that the wheels fall off so I can get a new one. Um, That's how you can feel sometimes when you're driving down the road and the steering wheel is kind of going like this. And you're like, I have no clue when this sucker's just going to go left, you know. And that's what happens in life when we think we're the ones that are in control of it. We're happy one day. The next day we're dirt depressed and wondering why in the world do I have to live another day. Well, realize you're not in control. You're not going to understand everything. Let God be in control of yourself. And when we give our life to Christ, and we realize the sacrifice that he paid for us to live, he didn't die on the cross for you to simply exist in this world. 
People were doing really good at that prior to him dying on the cross. John 10.10 says that he came and he died for us so that we could have life and have it to the fullest. He doesn't want anything less for you than the greatest life possible. So I'll ask you, what brings you happiness? What brings you joy in life? You see, that's a good question, and it's a bad question. Because left to ourselves, we interpret that as, oh, okay, then going to the bar and getting drunk makes me happy. Not the next morning, but in the moment. So that means I get to do it. Well, remember that God is the judge. So the decisions that you make in what makes you happy you'll be held accountable for. And God is in control. So what makes you happy? And Jennifer and I had a good discussion a couple days ago. And I'm one of these people that I'm big about this whole concept, especially when applied to your job. Because I personally do not want to do anything that does not bring enjoyment to my life. I do not want to be miserable eight hours of my day doing something I don't want to do. One, I want to do what God wants me to do. Two, I want to be happy doing it. Jennifer likes her job. She will do her job. Could she go somewhere else and be just as happy? Yep. Could she go somewhere and be happier? Yep. Will she? Nope. (laughs) Because her happiness is found in her family. Her happiness is found in, can I pay my bills so that I can have fun with my family? And even though that's healthy, it drives me nuts. But she's living because she's found happiness. She finds what makes her happy, and she does what she has to to have that satisfaction, that happiness in life. I encourage you to find that happiness. Find what makes you happy and glorify God with it. And remember you have it because he gave it to you. Because he opened the door for you to be able to have it. Because he wants you to be happy. He wants you to enjoy the life that he's given you. Next week, I encourage you to be here, to drag someone with you. If you have to, use the method that I did with one of Jennifer's coworkers. 
Um, I threatened to take the air out of her tires and toilet paper her house if she did not come to church. I can do that with her because she knows I'm joking. Um, Don't go do that to a stranger, please. Um, Because, yeah, don't do that. But invite people to come. I'm not big about saying you need to come because the message is going to be great um, because I don't like to put myself out there like that. But what God is putting on my heart, I feel like, will touch some lives. And uh, so I encourage you and I pray that you will um, invite as many people as you can. Uh, Not just for me, but for them and for you. To hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in, I hope, I pray, a fresh, new, life-changing way.